Well, I invite you to turn with me to uh, Hosea, uh, chapter 13. This will be our second last foray into Hosea. Um, Hosea, chapter 13, and we're going to read the whole chapter, uh, 1 through to 16. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images. Idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away like the chaff that swirls from the thrashing floor, or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. I was the one who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So I I am to them like a lion, like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, Give me a king and princes? I gave you a king. In my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him. But he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though they may flourish, he may flourish among his brothers. The east wind, the wind of the Lord, shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt, because he has rebelled against her God. It shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to see lessons in this passage that are useful to us and uh, bring out the truth of your word to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't think it's difficult to imagine a scenario where um, you can maybe imagine this. Maybe you know somebody like this. Uh, someone you, you once knew who was uh, fully committed to the Lord. And they were regularly church, regularly came to the prayer meeting, uh, sharing the gospel with friends and neighbors, uh, you know, doing all the things that Christians do. And, um, and they were doing well for themselves in life, and they, were, they had a good job, a nice home, delightful family. Uh, but then, over time, they began, began to come a little bit less often. Stopped coming to church. And in fact... After a while, you realize you've not actually seen them for a while. They seem to have kind of dropped off the map, as it were, and uh, they've disappeared. That's happened. It's happened in this church. Maybe you know some people like that. 
And what's happened is the, the person has become quite comfortable in life, and uh, their zeal for the Lord has waned somewhat. And uh, they've been tempted to, as it were, drop the tempo of spiritual experience. Uh, maybe they've succumbed to other temptations as well. Maybe sins have come into their lives, and they've decided that actually I'm just going to indulge myself in these things. But you know, uh, that changes your whole attitude and your whole outlook on life. It changes your attitude to the church. You, you don't want to be convicted. You don't want to be challenged by these things. You like to live your life the way that you you continue to live it, and and so you begin to drift off and disappear from the church. And maybe you're indulging in sin. You, you know, somebody's. Somebody like that is, is indulging in sins that uh, nobody knows about. Um, eventually just stop coming altogether. And disappear off the face of the earth. They're kind of, kind of like the prodigal son, if you like. Remember that story, Luke 15? And uh, the, the boy grows up in his father's household with all the benefits of his father's house. And uh, so many blessings and so many good things. And then there comes a point where he says, um, actually, I just want my share all now. Uh, and I want to go and do my own thing. And uh, he goes off and does his own thing and disappears. And uh, he, does, he just seeks a life of indulgence and in whatever he fancies. I think that's the kind of picture that's uh, been painted for us of the nations of uh, Israel and Judah. Remember the two, Israel has been split into two nations, the northern tribe, Israel, southern tribe, Judah. And uh, you know, these are people who have been on the receiving end of God's rescue, of his wonderful care for them through trying times. Um, God has been their helper and sustainer through many uh, difficult periods. And then in, in, in his blessing, he has led them to the promised land. And they become somewhat fat and self-indulgent. The land has flowed, as it were, with milk and honey. Many blessings of the promised land have come their way. And instead of turning to God and giving thanks to God continually for his, his manifold blessings, they begin to drift away from him. Because they're comfortable. They're kind of comfortable. You know, they, they don't need God. They've, just got, they've got everything they need. And they begin to drift into pagan worship. Doing what everybody else does. Doing the things that everybody else around them does. And they drift into pagan idolatry. And more and more sins come into the nation. And uh, they begin to fall away. That's the story of Hosea. I think we've been following Hosea all this time. God is, how God has sent a prophet... Hosea to the people, to warn his people, to tell them that what God has in store for them, and it's not good because they've drifted away from him. And he, as he does so, we cannot but think together how could a people so blessed fall into such dreadful, a dreadful state of affairs? How could people that have received so much from God just turn away from him into such a life? And so there's a whole note of tragedy, as we've seen. A whole note of tragedy, of sadness, as we have reviewed their situation uh, time after time. Uh, and it's a sense of tragedy, much as we would feel if we had a friend who had 
known the blessing of God, known salvation, or it seems as though they knew salvation, but then they began to drift off and disappear out of our lives for no obvious reason. They wander from the faith of Jesus Christ. Well, friends, I think this chapter has a number of warnings for us uh, that we would be, do well to pay attention to. Um, and I hope that it will help us uh, to get a better sense of perspective about our lives. Uh, one thing we do need to have as Christians is, uh, is a bigger perspective of our lives, set within the framework of God's redeeming grace, not simply set within the, the jobs that we do or the houses we have or the homes that we have, or the community we live in, but set within the framework of God's saving grace and, um, and how we need to have that right perspective on our lives. So I've got four things to mention from this passage this evening. Uh, and first of all, uh, to note that prosperity without God never amounts to anything. Prosperity without God never amounts to anything. If you look at verse 1, uh, you'll see that uh, uh, when Ephraim spoke, uh, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel. And Ephraim is one of the ten tribes of the northern tribes. And this capital city of Ephraim was actually the capital city of the whole ten tribes, Samaria. And, it, and so it had this sort of uh, 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 center of power in it. And we all know that when you have a center of power or authority for a nation, um, all sorts of benefits kind of begin to accrue to the city. Um, economic benefits, people want to be in the city or near the center of power. And uh, cities kind of grow around a center of power. And people get sucked into the kind of economic activity of the city uh, that's there. Now, that's, that's true of London, isn't it? Um, you know, London has grown enormous. Eight to ten million people now gathered uh, in the city of London or Washington or Beijing or wherever. And, but of course, so as well as a center for economics and, and, and power, the city also becomes a center for sin and indulgence. Where people find all sorts of, of sins that they can indulge themselves in. This is what's happened to Ephraim. Uh, exalted in Israel and yet they indulge, begin to indulge in Baal worship. And sin grows. More and more and more and more and more sins. And indeed it just becomes part of the culture of the nation, the city, the tribe, the, uh, the nation. And you see this in the, in the way that idols become uh, a kind of economic activity. People, are, <coughs> craftsmen begin to think, well, there's, there's money can be, can be made here. Uh, so I'll set myself as a craftsman who can build these idols that people can worship. And, uh, uh, and all the economics that's associated with that begins to grow and flourish around it. Uh, you might remember that Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he went to, to Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, and uh, people began to become, become Christians. And it was the center of the worship of Artemis, the god of the Ephesians. Um, but, of course, as so many people started becoming Christians, uh, they stopped buying the idols that people were making. And so all the artisans and, every, uh, and the craftsmen, they started getting up in arms about it and complaining to the authorities about it because there was an economic impact of Christianity coming to Ephesus. And they wanted Paul thrown out of the city because he was ruining business. 
You see, and the gospel becomes this life-transforming thing that changes, not only changes individuals, but changes a culture because uh, people start doing things differently. And so this whole culture had emerged in, in, in Ephraim as well. Uh, a culture of wealth, but also of sin and, wor- and worship of false gods. And all the associated practices. Now, what's the point of all this? Why are we looking at this? The point is, they had begun to reckon without God. Reckon life without God. And God sees this. He knows this. He understands it. And he is patient for a time. But the time comes when he acts. And so in verse 3 he says, Therefore they shall be like the morning mist. And like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or, or like smoke from a window. You see, prosperity without God never amounts to anything. It's like the mist of the air, or the dew on the ground, or the smoke in the sky. You know, when the sun rises, the mist disappears, the dew evaporates. When the wind blows, the, the smoke disappears, the chaff gets carried away. Life without God is utterly pointless and empty in the end. And that's, that's the problem, isn't it? All our prosperity, all our high positions, uh, all our comfort and all our pleasure, if you have all of that without God, in the end it will come to nothing. That's what he's saying. It counts for nothing. You may enjoy it for a moment, but in the end, it's gone. And so there are many people in this world that are putting their hopes in this world and ignoring God who has made, who's made them and made everything and given everything to them. And this is a warning, I think, for Christians who may be tempted to push Jesus Christ out from the center of their life and begin to put other things in at the center. In the end, all these things cannot satisfy they are, are nothing. Here's the second thing. God has the power to give and take as he pleases. And this is verses 4 through to 8. And once again, the goodness of God uh, to the people of Israel is spelled out. Look at verse five, um, verses 4 and 5. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. Remember, remember the Exodus. Uh, you know no God but me, and besides me there's no Savior. So I'm, I'm the one who saved you. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. And God is looking back to those days of the Exodus, when they were in Egypt, and in one sense they were in the wilderness in Egypt, spiritually speaking, because they had lost everything. They had become slaves under the Egyptians, and life was full of hard work and no reward. They were just slaves, that's what slaves do, they just work hard and get nothing. And God heard their cries in this wilderness, in all their suffering. And so he sent Moses and Aaron, along with the miracles, to testify to his saving grace, to lead the people out of slavery into a literal wilderness, into the desert. And you can feel for people, perhaps, you know, they're in slavery, but at least it's secure in a sense. But then they're taken out into the wilderness where there's no security. 
And you can just imagine the people, and I think they did say things like this. They said, why do we leave Egypt to follow Moses to this? You know, into the wilderness. But God was there, you see. In all of this, you read it in the book of Exodus, God was there. God was with them. He led them through a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And he fed them bread from heaven and quails came and landed at their feet and they could eat meat. And he brought water from rocks so that they could drink. Amazing, amazing things that happened under God's hand in the wilderness. Day after day, God blessed them and helped them. They were fed and then they were led to this land of, uh, of land flowing with milk and honey, as it were. But it was when they were full and experiencing the goodness of God that they faced the greatest danger. The greatest danger is that they forgot God. They just left him behind. You know, times of material blessing are, are usually the most dangerous times for Christians. It's easy to forget God when everything seems sorted in your life. It's easy to believe that it's all my own work. It's all about me. I've done this. I've, I've made all this. I've done this. Now, the point of this is, is all, this, all this can be taken away in an instant. And sometimes it can happen suddenly and violently. You look at verses 7 and 8. So, I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. You know, no one expects calamity in life. No one expects a temporal judgment from God. No one expects that the wealth and comfort that they have accumulated might be taken away in an instant. Uh, it reminds me of, uh, I was thinking about this, and I was reminded of something I've quoted before, but uh, at Cicero. Cicero was a, lived in the first century BC. He was a Roman statesman, lawyer, philosopher, and uh, he said something about how death comes to people. He said, no one is so old that he doesn't expect to live another year. Just think about that for a second. No one is so old that he doesn't expect to live another year. In other words, no one believes that they're going to die when they actually do. No matter how bad your health gets, we, our health gets, we always believe we're going to live quite a bit longer. There's always more time. We always think there's more time, and then suddenly it comes. Death comes. And that's what happens to people who forget God. Forget God. They're unprepared for calamities that come, even death that comes. See, God gives and God takes away. Blessed be God. Here's the third thing. And this is verses 9 to 11. People who ignore, who ignore their helper find themselves helpless. People who ignore their helper find themselves helpless. In verse 9, uh, God is described as a helper. Uh, he destroys you, Israel, for you're against me, against your helper. God is a helper of his people. And uh, as we've seen, God is a, <coughs> a helper of his people in adversity. Uh, now, the term helper is interesting because um, I think we have a habit of thinking of a helper as somebody who's inferior. Uh, like, you know, rich Victorian household where 
which had helpers and servants to, to look after the Lord and the lady of the house. And, uh, you know, so the servants are inferiors who help the superiors. And we can sometimes think of helper in that way. And, you know, sometimes we have trouble with uh, describing a wife as the helper of a husband. Because the world thinks uh, that means she must be inferior to the husband. Of course she isn't. Actually, God is a helper, but there's no way that he is inferior to any of us. He's exalted in glory and majesty. He is the great God. He's Lord of all. And yet, he is the Lord of all who is our helper. He comes down to help us and to bless us. He's the kind of God who, who stoops down low to be with his people. He's like the kindly father that gets down on his knees to help his child with something that he or she is working on or playing with or something. He's the exalted Lord who stoops down to help his people. But what happens when you turn away from God, your helper, and you turn to other sources of power and authority in your life? You turn to kings and governments and banks and institutions and family structures, whatever it is. What happens when you forget God and turn to all these things? What has God to say about that? Well, he can take away all those sources of help. Look at verse 10. Where now is your king to save you in your cities? In all your cities. Where are your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave, you a king in my, I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath. You see, not even the king could help Israel. The king of Israel was powerless in face of the might of the Assyrians that was brought by God uh, to bring his judgment on the people of Israel. And in the end, the kings were removed. Look at it in two kings. You can read about it, how the kings were taken away. You see, if people ignore God as their helper, do not be surprised if they find themselves helpless and powerless. So last of all, in the last few verses, here's the headline. People who ignore God have only death to look forward to. People who ignore God have only death to look forward to. Well, this is another miserable sermon, isn't it? We need to hear it, don't we? We need to hear it. We mustn't laugh and then ignore it. Uh, God wants us to pay attention to his word. It really matters, and it's for our good. Uh, it sobers us up, doesn't it? Helps us see things clearly. Get, helps us to get the sense of perspective. And the verses 12 to 16, the picture is painted here of Ephraim in all his sin. And it's, he is like a child uh, in the womb, ready to be born. But, in verse 13... Uh, he says this, the pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son, and at the right time he doesn't present himself at the opening of the womb. What a strange thing. It's like uh, he's, he's in the womb, and uh, the time for birth has come, and he's, he's inside the womb, holding himself in, saying, I don't want to be born. <laughs> Such a bizarre idea, isn't it? But that's what Ephraim's like. God wants to do something and bring newness of life, his life, to people. And Ephraim's holding it back, you see. 
And saying, I just want to stay where I am in the, the cozy comfort of the womb that I'm in. Well, that, what happens if, you st- if a child, a baby stays in the womb and doesn't come out? Well, there's only death to come. Death comes to the mother and to the child. It's a terrible thought, isn't it? Now, it's some of the English... So, verse 14, the right Hosea, or God, through Hosea, asks this question. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? Uh, some translations have it as a statement, uh, but it's, it's better as a question. Um, and God is kind of de- deliberating here. You know, here's Ephraim trying to stop himself being born and res- into newness of life. And God is deliberating with himself. He says, shall I, shall I save him from Sheol? Shall I, uh, shall I redeem them from death? And You know, it raises the question for us. Is God thinking about saving his people from their sins? And the answer in the immediate context of Hosea is, for the time being, no. The answer is no, not yet. No. Because judgment is coming. The hand of Assyria is coming. Uh, they'll not be able to avoid it. But when you come to the second half of verse 14, he says this, O death, where are your plagues? O shale, where is your sting? And maybe God is suggesting that there's, there's somewhere or other that uh, this plague, this death, can somehow be removed from the people of Israel. Of course, some of you will recognize those verse, that verse, that half verse, verse 14, because it's taken up in the New Testament. It's taken up by the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15. And you'll You remember that in that chapter, Paul is speaking about resurrection from the dead. He's talking about salvation from death. How does that happen? Jesus Christ has come. He has died for sins. He has been buried. He has been raised again to life. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so, as it were, he is the first fruits of a harvest that is to come. That's that's what Paul says. He's a first fruits of the harvest. And the greater harvest is going to come. That there is a people who are going to be resurrected as well. That's why we say as a Christian church, I believe in the resurrection in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the resurrection from the dead. In the life everlasting. And so Paul is, is talking about this resurrection. And he's talking about how, how life is going to be after this resurrection. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, uh, 53, he says, For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And then Paul writes, Then the saying that was written has come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? He is taking it from Hosea. And so what is left is uncertain on Hosea, but leaving a question hanging there. Can God save from death? Is answered in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. 
That through Jesus Christ, who has been raised from the dead, in his train will follow a multitude of people who will be resurrected from the dead as they believe in him. This is a great thing about the gospel. This is the, the truth of the gospel. The answer is in Jesus Christ in the end. All of this misery is paving the way. If you like, the Old Testament Israel is like a womb from which will be born the seed that will save Jesus Christ. And meanwhile, they have to deal with all the misery of their sin until he comes. See, it's in Christ. All this misery finds its ultimate answer. All the sin of Ephraim, all the sins of Israel, indeed all the sins of all the people, uh, people from all nations all over the world, if they come to Jesus Christ, they can find the answer to their sins. He is the only one who can deal with it. He comes and bears the wrath of God in their place. He stands in their place. He is the substitute, substitute. And all we need to do is put our faith in him. Commit our lives to him. Put, as well, all our eggs in this one basket, Jesus Christ. And he will save us all. That will be life-changing for people to do that. It changes everything about your life. You'll never be the same again when you do that. But it's worth it. It really is worth it. You have, people may have all sorts of fears about putting their, their lot in with Jesus Christ. Is my life going to change? Am I going to lose this or that or the other? But in the end, you will never doubt the, the wisdom of that decision to come to Christ, to follow him. So, people who receive blessing from God and yet live as though he doesn't exist, they're going to, if they're going to avoid emptiness, loss of security, ultimate helplessness, and death at the end of life, then they need to undergo the convulsions of coming to Jesus. That's the answer. Everything points to Jesus Christ in the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage which uh, is sobering in so many ways and yet we see the answer as the provision you have made in Jesus Christ to save sinners so Lord help us to cast our lot in with him as it were fully and completely and utterly help us we pray not to hold back from him we pray in Jesus name Amen